Hey, good evening, Redemption. Hey, it's good to see you guys. As always, love doing this. Um, if it's your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, just a little bit about Redemption. We are one church, and we meet in multiple congregations. So we meet in Gateway, Gilbert, Arcadia, and this is the Tempe congregation. Um, just in short, we believe that all of life is all for Jesus, and so therefore, our mission is to make disciples who understand that truth. And so if you want to learn more about who we are as Redemption or ways in which you can get connected, best thing you can do is take that information card that's in the seat in front of you uh, at some point during the service. Fill out any questions that you have. Uh, just put your name and email address on that. And then during our time of response, you can drop that off in the uh, offering boxes that are located in the back. Also, if you're here and you're saying, I do want to get connected, I want to get plugged into the community, the best thing you can do is to join a redemption community. Uh, last week I said how our groups are getting full. We've had a few groups that have started um, and a few groups that are going to start in the next few months. And then a few leaders who said, hey, you know, we're not that full. And so uh, if you want to be in a redemption community, uh, I believe it's the best thing that we do here to connecting people, to understanding God's word, and to do life with one another. Again, take that, take that information card that's in the seat in front of you, fill out your name and email address, and then one of the guys will be able to get back to you and get you connected. Uh, first, I want to take a shout out and just say uh, thanks and our welcome thanks. Welcome back from summer vacation to all you students. I heard that students starting, uh, excuse me, ASU is starting this week, so have fun. Um, some of you incoming freshmen, get ready, and uh, we'll be praying for you all. Uh, this morning, we saw a lot of rush of our students back from sermon trips and whatnot, and so on to say welcome back to Tempe and welcome to the heat. So we're looking forward to getting you plugged in and getting you discipled as well. Uh, one night's announcement that I do have, uh, this is something that uh, the guys in the office are really excited about. Now that we own the property, uh, we're going to do an event, and that means on September 21st, we are going to have our first, and maybe our last, we'll see, uh, dodgeball tournament. All right, and so we have, yeah, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. Uh, the 10 o'clock service was like, well, it's dodgeball. And I said, you know what, when I get to the 7 o'clock, they're going to be high, the, excuse me, the 5 o'clock, the 7 o'clock, they're going to start dancing when they hear about that. So uh, we're going to do this, and this is something we want everyone to participate in. So there will be rules, there will be teams, um, there will be, it would be very competitive, and so uh, there will be some people probably saying and doing things that they would need to be rebuked from. Uh, Hence, I'm not playing. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to ref because I already know how that goes. And so I'm going to be a ref there. Uh, we're going to have food. We're going to have barbecue. We want you to bring your kids, bring your friends, um, friends that you know. We're, we just want to get together inside the gym um, September 21st. Food, we'll, we'll start eating food at 630s. Games will start sharply at 7 o'clock. I think we're going to have about 40 teams, uh, official dodgeball rules. And so Put together a team with your redemption community. Put together a team with your friends. Uh, put together, you know, with some people that you don't know, but you know they're really good at dodgeball. Hey, there's no, no rules here. There's not going to be like a catch. Um, someone said, are you guys going to have an evangelistic night? No, no. There's going to be no catch. We're just going to play dodgeball, all right? So uh, it's a great opportunity for us to get to know each other in, um, in a non-service uh, format. And so that's September 21st. It's on a Friday, um, not on a Saturday night, because somebody said, you know, football's on Saturday night, and so some people may not show up. So um, we're going to do it on a Friday night, um, uh, September 21st. And so you'll hear more details about that and where you can sign up um, as we uh, continue to uh, work out the details. Best part about this, this is ran not by the pastors. There's a group of people here um, in Tempe that are saying, hey, we want to do something where people can meet people. Uh, primarily single people. I'm just saying, they got together and just said that we want to do something where people can meet people. Can we use the facilities to put on a dodgeball tournament? And we thought, um, that is a gift from God, and so we're going to be able to do that. So save the date. September 21st, uh, we'll be there. All right, 
on the business now. You guys have your Bibles. Why don't you meet me in Psalm chapter 16? That's where we're going to be at. Um, if you do not have a Bible, raise your hand and keep your hand raised really high so one of the, the guys or gals can get you a copy of God's Word. If you don't own a Bible, please keep the, keep the copy that we give to you so that you can keep it um, and you can read God's Word throughout the week. We are in week three on our series, The Four Gs. Um, this is a series that we, we, we decided to choose so that we can look at the character of God, four attributes of God, and uh, apply those attributes to our life to see transformation. Um, ultimately, what we were looking for in this series was repentance and faith, which we know is not only how you become a Christian, but how you grow as a Christian. And so the terms for that as we grow as a Christian, the biblical term for that is called sanctification. And so week one, we talked about how in the book, the book that we got these four G's from, you can change. Uh, Tim Chester quotes and says that sanctification is the narrowing of the gap of confessional faith and functional faith. And so confessional faith is what we say we believe about God and functional faith is how we live. And the way that we change and the way that we grow is by the truth of scripture and the truth of God. And so week one, we looked at God is great, so we don't have to be in control. And last week we saw God is glorious, and so we don't have to fear others. And then tonight we'll look at God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. And so three things, three questions I want to ask as we walk through the text today is, one, what is God's goodness? Why do we look elsewhere? And how can we experience God's goodness? And so the, the, my goal and prayer for this morning and for this evening is that we would walk away understanding that God is enough. Um, we're, we're going to get personal today and really talk about your sin um, and how the Bible addresses your sin and whatever it is that you're looking to other than God and praying that the Holy Spirit himself would bring about change. And so before we look into God's word, um, just out of means of reverence and help, would you bow your heads with me so we can pray to the Lord and ask God by the Holy Spirit to bless our time tonight. Father, we thank you so much um, for just the gift of your son Jesus, the gift of the church. Father, we thank you, Lord, that um, we can sing songs, Lord, that just reveal your truth. And Father, as we come to your word now, and as we come to the word that was written, Lord, for us to read and to understand and apply, God, we ask for help by your Holy Spirit. As we begin to talk about the reasons of why we look elsewhere, Father, there's not a person in this room that, that doesn't look elsewhere. Father, we understand the, the seriousness of sin, and some of us don't. Lord, we, we've, we've sensed the guilt Lord, many of us feel like sin has us and we don't have it. So, Father, we ask right now, Lord, that you would be made manifest, Lord, through the preaching and the teaching of your word. Father, we ask right now that you would humble our hearts, O Lord, that we would see that there is nothing in heaven, there is nothing on earth that we desire besides you. So raise our affections for your son, Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We look to this, we're going to jump right in here in chapter 16. Uh, just a context of where we are in Psalm 16 is this is a psalm written by David. Uh, many commentaries would say that, that this psalm is David's best psalm. This psalm, this is his golden psalm. Um, this is a psalm in which he talks to the Lord in the midst of trouble. If you follow David's life at all and you read through the psalms, you see David is, is running from enemies often. And it's the same in this psalm that he finds himself running from enemies, and in doing so, he's drawing near to the character of God. And as we look at that, we, we, we can think about our lives, because when we, what we didn't want is for us to say that when we study doctrine or we study theology or attributes of God, that it's something that we do that, that's static. 
But we believe that when you understand the Bible, you don't just believe something about the Bible, but you do something. And so David is on mission. David is living his life. And the way that he fuels his life is by reminding himself of who he is before the face of God. In the same way that we're going to remind ourselves as we live our life, who we are as we stand before the face of God, the presence of God, and the character of God. And so we first start with looking um, and answering the question, what is God's goodness? Read with me in chapter 16, verse 1. David reads, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones. In whom is all my delight? So, so David starts first from Psalms one. Excuse me, Psalm verse one. Excuse me, chapter six, verse one. Preserve me, O God, and in you I take refuge. When we talk about God's goodness, first we have to understand what we mean by that. Wayne Grudem has a definition of God's goodness that says He is the standard of everything that is good, meaning all that God says, all that God does is good. That nothing else is good apart from Him. So everything that we experience in this life that we think is good is nothing but a shadow of the source who is God alone. And so when God speaks, it's good. Whatever decision God's make, God makes is good. And his goodness is not just something how he's good to us, but it's closely related to his mercy. It's closely related to his grace. It's closely related to um, his patience as well as his love. And so David leans into God's goodness and talking about how he's a refuge. He he says, preserve me, you are my refuge. And when he begins to talk about God being his refuge, sometimes we don't see that as being good because we don't have a good understanding of what it means for God to be our refuge. Naturally, what we think when it comes to God being our refuge is that it's somewhere we go to hide. Somewhere we go to be um, defensive. it's It's a sense where we can go to God and hide, but that's not what it means. In fact, biblically, when we read through the Psalms and David and the other psalmists write about God being our refuge, they're talking about his goodness to provide, his goodness to care, um, to provide for our needs and food, shelter and clothing, and also to give us protection and the ability to live the lives that God's called us to live. What, what, what David is saying here, it is God's goodness, it is his refuge, it is his strength, strength that gives us the ability to be a missional people. Or in other words, to be obedient to the commands that God has called us to do, the things that God's called us to do, to be a people who God's called us to be. And so David says, understanding God's goodness, that he is good, I don't have to look elsewhere. He's got enemies around him. He's got temptations within him. And he constantly looks to God. God is my refuge. He is the one in whom I will go to. He continues in verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. What David is saying here is he's acknowledging himself before God. If you are the source of good, if you are my refuge, if you are my strength, if you're the one who gives me the boldness to be obedient in this life, there's nothing good in me. And apart from you, I can do no good. This is just hints of what Jesus would say, that if we do not abide in him, we won't produce fruit. But if we abide in Jesus, that we would produce fruit. Apart from him, we could do no good. Not that we can't just be, quote unquote, good people, but the goodness that flows from the spirit of God, the goodness that flows from seeing who Christ is, believing who Christ is, cherishing who Christ is, that it shapes our entire life. David goes, apart from that, apart from God, you, apart from your character, I'm no good. God, God is the ultimate goodness. He himself is the source. Everything else is nothing but a rusty water fountain. That we have hints of God's goodness as we enjoy his creation. 
We have hints of God's goodness and, and deep fellowship and intimacy with one another. We have, we have hints of his goodness with our children, with our friends, with things that we delight in. But those things in themselves, they're, they're just a fountain um, ultimately where the source in itself is from God. And every single person is seeking goodness. It just depends on where we're seeking it. In fact, G.K. Chesterton says this, that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. I know some of you are going like, I don't even know what a brothel is, actually. Um, contemporary language. Every man who goes to a strip club is looking for God. Now you're like, oh, that's what he means, right? And when I first read that, I'm thinking, I have no idea what he's talking about there. And his whole point was saying, when you understand God and his refuge, when you understand God and his goodness, you realize we just look to things that are just twisted goodness. We, we look to things that are just shadows. Even though that is sinful, sin in itself is not something that Satan created. Uh, cre- Satan did create sexual sin. He took something that God said was good, and he twisted it. And so we look to these things in our sinful nature. We look to things that are just marred. That look, we look to things that are twisted, that are dislocated. And so when we look to these things, what G.K. Chesterton is saying is every single person is looking for good. They're just looking in the wrong places. That God himself gives us himself freely, primarily in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. But we find ourselves looking to other things. And so if God is good, and he's as good as the word says he is, and David says that he can take refuge in him. And in fact, you look at a parallel verse of Psalm um, 16, verse 1, is Psalm 34, verse 8, which says, Taste and see that the Lord is good and take refuge in him. There's a sense of, look, taste and see. He's that good. But even though we know that, we, we look elsewhere. I can say to him blue in the face, God, God is good, don't look elsewhere. In fact, most of you could go, yeah, I know God is good. If I gave you a test, you can write it down, you can say, I, I understand God is good. I know the Bible really well. I've, I've, I've done sword drill. I've done Awana. I've done everything. I, I understand that God is good. And yet, why do we look elsewhere then? Why do we look elsewhere? We agree with what David says, that, that, that God is good, but we find ourselves looking to other things. And when I say look elsewhere, it's saying I'm taking the ultimate goodness and I'm looking to something else that I think will satisfy. It has everything to do with the fact that we as a culture are just discontent. We want to move from one thing to the next as fast as possible because we think that particular thing will satisfy that if we go from one relationship to the next relationship, one job to the next job, one city to the next city, hopefully one day this, particular, this is it. This is the day. This will satisfy. We, we, don't, we don't even do it with things. We do it to like, with like future things, right? You ever have that next year's the year? Next year's, no, next year. Watch, I'm going to lose that weight. I'm going to get that girl. I'm going to grow. I mean, there's just, there's just a, there's just a sense. I'm, I'm next year's the year, next year's the year, and then like the year never comes. You, you, you never get there. There's a sense that something will satisfy. Um, we follow after these things because we have a worship disorder. One of the best stories in the Bible that displays this, and we'll paraphrase it, is in John chapter four. We taught this a few few months ago. It's the woman at the well. We have Jesus himself. He shows up to Samaria. And while he's there, he's by himself. There's a woman that's coming to get water. So we have all types of race issue here. We have uh, sexism here. And Jesus begins to talk to this woman. And she's like, you're not supposed to be talking to me because I'm a woman and I'm a Samaritan. And then Jesus goes, if you knew the one who was talking to you, asking for a drink, you would ask and he would give you living water. Seems like a normal conversation about water. But Jesus is trying to get this to the sin underneath the sin. And she goes, well, tell me where this living water is. I mean, she's kind of speaking sarcastically. She goes, well, tell me where this living water is because you know what? I'm getting sick and tired of coming to this well. It'd be good to know where this living water is because I don't want to walk here anymore. 
And then Jesus says, hey, why don't you go and get your husband? Which was like a dagger to the heart for her. She goes, well, I don't have a husband. And he goes, you're right in saying that you don't have a husband. But you've had five, and the guy that you're living with now is not even your husband. Now she's looking at Jesus like, man, how does he know this? He, go, he says, do the math, essentially. The first guy, he didn't satisfy. The second guy, he didn't do it. The third, the fourth, the fifth. Why do you think the sixth will? And then he begins to reveal to her what her issue is. The issue is not the relationship or the desire to be in relationship. The issue comes down to worship. He begins to tell her, you people think this is what worship is, but there's a day coming where you will worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is pointing this woman to himself. Now, changes her life, but he gets to the sin underneath the sin. So naturally what we do is go, hey, just go move out. You know, you're leaving with that guy. You're living with sin. You know, that didn't work. You know, get, get yourself a job. Get your kids in school. Get your hair did. I mean, just, just do, a, do a few things, and that would be okay for you. And Jesus goes, no, the reason why you're looking to these things is because there's a worship disorder. Week one, we went after the idol. God is in control. Um, Excuse me, God is great, so we don't have to be in control. It was going after the idol of control. Last week, when we said God is glorious, and so we don't have to fear others, it was the idol of human approval. And this week, when we say God is good, we don't have to look elsewhere. It is the idol of comfort. It's the idol of comfort. And you say, what do I mean by that? It's where do you turn to for comfort? When, when, When the world seems out of control for you, where do you turn to for comfort? When you feel like you have a lot of stress, what do you go to for comfort? What do you turn to? You see, this woman, she turned into a relationship, and maybe that's what you turn to. Um, um, I, I don't know your story, but it's something. Um, you turn, you look to something. And, and what I'm talking about now, this is usually not something that everybody else sees. This is something usually that you know. Um, I, I joked around a few months ago how, for me, I know one of the things that I, I know it's just a comfort thing. Um, sometimes it's, it's a thing of just being delicious, but another thing that's a comfort is, uh, is late-night eating. Um, especially, let's just say, hypothetically speaking, that in my household there's these peanut butter chocolate chip cookies, and there's two left. I know my wife likes them. I really know my son likes them, but they've gone to bed. Right? So I have this, this issue sometimes, should I eat the cookie or not? And I'm like, no, I'm not going to eat the cookie. But see, the cookie talks to me, and it's like, hey, come eat Rick, come eat me. I'm like, no, you know, God is, God is good. I don't have to look elsewhere. And he says, yeah, but I'm good too, right? And there's, just that, there's, that, there's, that, there's that sense there where it's like, do I want to go after this? No, I'm just, it's not a joke. That's actually true. But there's the, other than the talking part, there, there's, a, there's a sense where we turn to food. Um, we turn to sex. Um, we, we turn to multiple things to look to for comfort. Um, what, what, we're, what we're doing in that moment is we're believing that particular thing will satisfy. But what we're saying in that moment is, is we're disagreeing, we're not believing the truth about God and his goodness, but we're, we're turning to this thing and saying this will satisfy. And this happens to every single one of us. What, what I'm talking about, guys, is, is secret sin. See, when I say God is great, you don't have to be in control, you can see people. We know people who struggle with control. We see them all the time. And, then, and, if, and I say God is, is, is uh, glorious and we don't have to fear others. We, we, we can see sometimes people who have human approval. We can see it in their lives. And we can see the insecurities. We can see it. But when I say God is good, you don't have to look elsewhere. This is the one where you can get away. Like this is the one publicly you can get away. You can look good. You can look like you have all your, your, your ducks in a row. You go to church on Sunday. You can lead the best redemption community. You can even be the best pastor. This, this particular sin, this particular idol of comfort, that when we pursue things, even guys in my position, men and women, no matter who you are, this is one that you can get away with because you can hide it. 
It's, it, it, you can call it secret sin because it's something usually you go to that no one else knows. And you feel like you don't need to tell anybody else because this is a particular sin that it's, it's your sin. It's, a, it's a, not just a secret sin. We call it like pet sins, which I don't know why we call it pet sins. But when I was thinking about that yesterday, I thought this is a good, this is a good illustration for that. Um, we all have pets or you've had a pet that, that you didn't like and no one else liked, but you kept it anyway, Right. You know that pet, that this annoying pet? It's like, why do we still have this thing, but you keep it around? Every once in a while, you're like, you know what? It's good to have a pet, right? But most of the time, you don't think like that. Well, when we were kids, we got a dog. I, my dad got a dog for us, right? And we had to keep, the, the dog could not live with us. The dog had to live at my grandmother's house. And not only live at my grandmother's house, it had to stay in this caged area because the dog was vicious, right? We would have been better off having a lion for a pet, no joke. We were never allowed to play with the dog. We couldn't pet the dog because he would just go nuts. Um, half chow, half German shepherd. His name was Sapphire. And we'd say, Sapphire, and he'd just go after us. And so the whole point was, the only way you can be with Sapphire is if he's on the other side of the cage, right? And it was weird. It was like, you have a dog? Yeah, I have a dog. It's kind of dangerous, right? But we have, we have a dog, right? We take pictures next to the fence. It's like me and my dog, right? <laughs> and, my, and my mom and dad would say, he's okay as long as he doesn't get out because when he gets out, it's all bad. He got out three times. All three times, he bit somebody. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the last time he bit someone, finally they said, we, we got we to gotta put this dog down. And I know it's not Marley and me. I'm, I'm just talking. Use, use an illustration right now, right? Is, is, uh, as funny as it is with that dog, uh, that's what we do with sin. And we, we try to manage it. Like, we'll keep it around as long as we can keep it caged in. We'll, we'll do certain things to put around it. Maybe, maybe some things we put, some blockers we put, maybe some software, maybe some accountability. But we keep it around. Um, we, we just keep it there because there are some moments that we actually do see God as good. And we don't want to look elsewhere. We can say, like David says in verse 1, that God is my refuge and he's my protection. He's my care. He's given me all that I need. I'm content with God. But then there's other moments because of circumstances, because of what's happening in your life because of your own sin, that you want to go to that caged animal. And I don't, again, I don't know what your issue is, but you know what it is. As soon as I say that God is good, you don't have to look elsewhere. Just ask yourself the question, where do I look elsewhere when I'm looking for comfort? It happens in so many ways, and we said this. It could be good things that we make the main thing. Good things. Um, we, we, because we're looking for comfort in that moment from something other, uh, something other than God, and so we just, we try to manage our sin, and, and that's how we deal with it. And managing sin doesn't deal with the issue, because at the end of the day, we know we have the key to the gate. And sometimes, not sometimes, it does get out, and it's destructive, and it saps you, and it sucks the life out of you. And there's not a person in this room that doesn't know what I'm talking about. It's just like when David talks about in Psalm 32, when he says, I didn't confess my sin, and I had sin in my life, and I was continuing to go there, and then God, I felt like his hand was heavy upon me. And we know what that's like. Sin never satisfies. It always promises that it will. Sin will always say things are great, things are good, and it's not. Chris Wright says this, that idols in themselves never fail to fail. They always fail us. And we usually don't know it, and so after we sin in that particular way, I mean, go, what have I done? And there's days, maybe even there's weeks, that we, that we get away from it, and then we're back there again because we're failing to see that God is good. We follow our feelings, and we follow desires that have gone wrong. You see, desires in themselves, they're not bad. Desires are God-given. All the desires that you and I have, they're God-given, but because of sin, they just go the wrong way. 
And so we find ourselves looking to things to satisfy again that will never satisfy. They just can't. They weren't made to satisfy. And so when it comes to sin, we have to kill it. We have to deal with it. But here's what I would say. When it comes to us as a church, you got to ask yourself the question, do you want to get rid of sin? Do you want to battle sin? Do you want to understand and see God's goodness? Because so often when we preach grace, which we will always preach, when we preach the gospel that God has forgiven us in the work of Christ, past, present, and future, some of us take an understanding that when we see God is good, we say God is good, not that we don't have to look elsewhere, but God is good so I don't have to do anything. And that's not the gospel. Some of us think because we believe in Jesus somehow that God himself is just going to take away the desire for sin. I think I've shared this with you before. Um, one of my good friends, he's actually not a good friend anymore, probably because he said this. He said that um, when I became a Christian, he said, oh, man, aren't you excited you're a Christian? I'm like, yeah. And, and some of you have had those conversion experiences where you get converted as an adult and you're really excited and, you, you know, you throw all your good music away and then you're mad later. Like, th- like those, those, those experiences. And he goes, here's the best thing about being a Christian. You'll never want to sin again. And I thought, really? And then like a minute later, I'm like, where'd he go? Right? He lied to me, right? That's a, that's a, that's a lie. And, and, and some of us think that. And not that, that, that somehow believing in Jesus takes away sin. Some of you think that believing in Jesus means you don't even have to worry about it. You can sin freely, sin all you want, because you know what? God's grace covers that. And that, that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, there is a difference between people who struggle with sin and people who quit. Meaning, people who struggle and hate their sin. So as soon as I say you look elsewhere, you go, yeah, yeah. And then people who go, yeah, I do look elsewhere. There's a difference between Romans chapter 7 and Hebrews chapter 6. Let me explain. Romans chapter 7 is the Apostle Paul talking about what I would believe is the Christian experience. He is a man of God. He's an apostle. And he's saying, I I, I see God's law. I see what's good. I want to do what's good. I want to do what's good. And then I see what God says is not good. And I don't want to do that. However, my experience is the things that I know that's good that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I know I shouldn't do, those are the things that I keep on doing. And there's this battle. You can, when you read Romans 7, you're like, "I, I feel like I'm reading Paul's journal. And not just Paul's journal. I feel like I'm reading my journal. Because as, as those of us in this room who would say we're Christian, we know I, we, I relate to Romans 7. Because there's always something that God has called me to do that I feel like I'm not doing. And the things that he's saying, don't do, I feel like I'm there. But Paul's conclusion is not, I'm going to stay there. His conclusion after Romans 7 and the first couple verses of Romans chapter 8 is that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, what a wretched man am I? Who's going to save me? He doesn't say that software is going to save me. He doesn't say my friends are going to save me. He says Christ Jesus by his spirit is going to save me. That's when you battle sin. Amen? We, there's a, we have to seriously battle sin until we're dead. I remember, I remember asking a guy one time, I said, hey, when, does, um, when do you stop struggling with lust? And he says, oh, when you die. That's encouraging, right? There's, there, 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 that's sin. Now, that's struggling. There's people who tap out. People who take the teaching of grace and say, oh, I'm forgiven, past, present, and future? Cool. I'll just do whatever I want to do since God wants to forgive me. There, oh, so you mean I, I can just sin? Oh, yeah, I'm just struggling with sin. Okay, struggling with sin, again, is fighting. It is trusting in God's grace, his means of grace. It is coming, it's confessing sin. It is repenting. It is getting back up. It is reading God's word. It's a struggle. There's people over here who just go, I'll get to it later. And turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Give you some time to turn there. Hebrews chapter 6, probably some of the scariest words in the scripture. 
So I want to make sure that we read it. And, and just as you turn there, the context of, of Hebrews here is he's talking about people like you and like me who show up to services on a Sunday, who profess maybe Jesus, who maybe went to some summer camp or a winter camp or was a part of some Christian ministry in college or whatever it may be, um, and yet your lives couldn't be anything further from what you say you believe. And, and here's what the writer of Hebrews says in, in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the, of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their harm and holding him up to contempt. Um, very scary verse. Because what he's saying is, there are people like you and like me who will come into services, will raise hands, will walk up and take communion, will sign a name of a card, will get in communities, will lead, some of them will even lead churches and, and have, a, have a sense of God's spirit around them and completely deny it by their actions. Deny it by their actions. Now, some people go, oh, this is just people who believe but didn't believe anymore. No, that, that's not, that's not, that's not uh, consistent with Scripture. This is not someone who's fully believed and lost their salvation. I'm not saying that. Sin doesn't make you lose your salvation. Never believing means you never believed. What, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is there is no way on God's green earth that you in this room can say that you believe God and there's nothing in your life that shows it. Because you check a box and you show up here every once in a while, I got things to do. Because you check a box and say, ah, I'm still married at least. Because you check a box and say, there was this cool experience that happened in college. I, I used to do the evangelism. I went on a summer trip. Hey, what, what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, if your life does not look like the life of Jesus, if you are not growing in grace and under understanding of obedience, there's no way that you can stand confidence of your assurance. I'm not saying that you're not saved. I'm just saying because of your life, you should be asking the question, am I? That's, that's not a fear tactic. It's just saying when you take God's grace and you say, because he's died on the cross, I can do whatever the heck I want to do. That's not an understanding of God's grace. That has never been the experience of any believer that we see in the scripture. That's never been the experience of any believer we've ever seen. Now, do they struggle? Do we struggle with sin in major ways? Absolutely. Did David himself, who wrote Psalm 16, who says, I will never look away, did he look away? Absolutely. In fact, David went as far as a believer in God, a man after God's own heart. He went all the way. He looked at a woman, took the woman, had sex with the woman, had kid with the woman, and then killed her, her, her husband. Like, that, I'm not saying a Christian won't do bad things. I'm just saying a Christian won't continue to. A Christian won't say in a flippant way, God's got grace for that. A Christian won't say in a flippant way, I'll, I'll just get back to him later because I want to do my thing. There are many of us, and I'm, I'm saying many, that I sit down with in this congregation that have that understanding that you get to write the script, that drunkenness somehow is not a sin. Sexual sin, oh, sex before marriage, it's, tw it's 2012. Who's not doing that? Hey, you signed up to be a Christian. I didn't sign you up. You signed up. You said, I believe. Believing in God is coming to terms with the gospel because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not a co-commitment. It's Christ as Lord. Amen? L listen, I I I'm not done. Revelation chapter 3, all right? I'm not, I I'm not done. 
Because here, here, here it is, um, and I, I, I believe it to the core of my being. It is, it is my fault as a pastor, if I'm, not, if I'm not teaching you, when we don't see God's goodness and we look elsewhere, that there are consequences of looking elsewhere. And this is Jesus' words, and you know what? I'm going to paraphrase it for you. Here's Jesus' word in Revelation 3. If you've been around church long enough, you've, you know this. If you haven't, I'll give it to you. Jesus is writing. This is a resurrected Jesus now, writing to the church in Revelation. Um, and he's talking to the church in Laodicea, excuse me. In Laodicea, in the city, there were hot springs and there were, there were cool springs. And in the middle, there, there had a water issue where there was a kind of a pipe there that some people would drink from. But that water wasn't very drinkable. And so many people think that Jesus is writing this ultimately through the apostle John thinking about that. And here's what he says to the church. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. He goes, I wish you were one, but you're lukewarm. And so some people have taught, maybe some of you here, um, that what Jesus is saying is be hot or cold. Be either all for me or be completely against me. That doesn't make any sense because I don't think Jesus would say, you know what, be against me. That's not what he's saying. There's a point of what he's talking about of usefulness. There's good things for cold springs. Cold springs are good, especially now. Cold springs are good. And then there's hot springs. It's the same way that when we go to somewhere to order coffee. We say, can I have an iced whatever, and can I have a hot whatever? We never go, you know what, can I get a lukewarm latte? Yeah, just make it real lukeish, right? That, 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 that never happens. He's saying, but because you're lukewarm, I spit you out of my mouth. Like, just the thought of that, hear hear me, the thought of your sin, my sin, that when we become indifferent, when we think just showing up is it, I just checked the box, when we become indifferent, the picture that Jesus gives to Christians now, he's actually speaking to Christians, is to that point, you make me sick. You make me sick. When you fail to see that God is good, and you begin to look to your career, and what you can build, you begin to look to, to your family, which is a good thing. But when you begin to look to pornography, when you begin to look to comfort in woman after woman and guy after guy, th- there's consequences for that. And if you continue to live that life, it's not good. And it does not end well. Turn back to Psalm 16. Here, here's what David says about chasing idols. When we fail to see that God is good and we look elsewhere. Verse 4, he says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. What he's implying there is, we all will have sorrows. Even the most obedient. Even those who look to Christ, follow Jesus, and trust in the gospel of grace. We will all have sorrows. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, he speaks it in a, Peter speaks it in a positive way, saying there will, there will be sorrows that come because you're obedient. But what David is saying is for those who follow other gods, for those who, who worship the idol of comfort, whatever that may be for you, he's saying it will multiply. Meaning the sorrows will multiply. It will be easier to continue that sin and harder to get out of it. It will be easier to click the mouse again and harder not to. It will be easier to continue to run to whatever it is that you're running to, whatever it is that you're looking to. It will be easier to do that. And the sorrows will come. And you'll keep having that same experience of, man, I did it again. 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 James says this in James chapter 4. If you resist the enemy, he will resist you. And hear me now. This does not mean that looking to God's goodness or um, the invitation to being a Christian and living as a Christian is just a dull sense of abstinence from everything. 
Because what we see in the Bible is God is offering something better. He's not saying what we have heard growing up, just don't do that, just don't do that. He's saying you don't need to do that because of what you have. You don't need to do, if you've tasted and seen that God is good. That's why right after James says that, he says that if you draw near to the Lord, that he will draw near to you. There's a sense that the way that we experience God's glory, that, that not only just understanding his goodness and not only understanding why we look elsewhere, but the way we experience, excuse me, God's goodness is by looking to God. It's by, it's by tasting and seeing that he's good. Because here's the deal. We've all been there. Yes, I am not preaching to, to just you. I'm preaching to myself. One of the most convicting sermons I find myself, there's a point where you can coast as a Christian. And, I, and I'm, as I'm writing this, I'm going, what, what good? I mean, I look to God. I don't really look to else. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. And part of it is just an apathy sometimes where I can put together a sermon. God's given me the ability to speak. I can speak. People can say amen. You can sing a few songs and we can go home. That's nonsense. Because that's not why God saved me. That's not why God saved you. There's a sense of I'm not worshiping the way that God has called me to worship. He's too good for that. Because at best, what we think is as long as I stay away from those things, then I'm good. You ever had that moment? Well, at least I don't do those things anymore. I'm okay. God is not saying just a dull sense of abstinence. Because whatever God offers, he offers more than sin. Because whatever sin offers, it can't match God. Because God is not only good, God is best. He's best. And when you continue to taste him, you draw near to him. The illustration that I have for this is the, my, my littlest son, Eli, who's 15 months now, he, he hasn't been having ice cream. And finally, we gave him ice cream. Oh, my goodness. It's like he, he thought, I think he thinks he's in heaven, right? No, the hard part about giving him ice cream is what? He doesn't want anything else, right? If he even sees it, he can't even talk. He, just, he can't even talk. He just points the thing. I know he's saying, yo, dad, what, what you're not going to give me some of that, right? You know, he's just walking. There's a sense where he's tasted something, and every time he sees it, he wants it. The way that we experience God, God's goodness, the way that we, we can turn from the idolatry that we have, we can turn from, from, from sin to see God's goodness is by trusting in God. It's by seeing him. It's by developing an understanding, cultivating a relationship with Christ. Here's what David says in verses 5 and 6. He says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Um, This is the best part of this this whole chapter. When he says the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, um, portion always meant good food and good drink. And so he's now he's saying, whatever the good food is and whatever the good drink here, God is better. He, he's my cup. And cup always was a, a sign um, usually of royalty or prestige, of honor. He's saying, God is my honor. He's my reputation. He's my portion. He's better than good food. In fact, when we're in the preaching collective, which is what we do 10 days before every sermon, all the pastors get together and interns and people, and we talk about um, what we're going to teach about 10 days out. And someone was like, yeah, you know, I get sick of the, the ideal of like someone saying, you know, God is broccoli versus a cheeseburger. I want God to be the cheeseburger. So that's probably your problem. Um, here, 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 here's the deal. Um, I think any metaphor I give you now, it doesn't do it. To say that God is a cheeseburger or God is a broccoli doesn't do it. What David is saying, he's best. That he satisfies. That, that, that God himself is not saying empty yourself of sin and just be empty. What he's saying is, as you pursue sin, you're always empty, but as you pursue God, he fills you. He doesn't just fill you with his spirit. He fills you with his word, that he becomes satisfying. And in the same way that we've tasted the stings of sin, most of us in this room that have believed upon the gospel, we've had moments where we've tasted and seen that God is good. 
And they're not just, God, you know, mountaintop moments. They're not just moments when, 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 when things are going good. God's good when things are good, and God is good when things are going bad. He's good when my kids are healthy, and he's good if my kids died. He's still good. He, he is good. He's the ultimate good. He's the source of good. And, and the reason why I don't want to give illustration is I'm tired of illustrations. There comes a point where as a believer, we just have to believe in God. That we just have to believe in him. We have to tell ourselves, I believe this. I don't feel this way, but I believe this way. God has to trump our feelings because God does not change. My feelings change all the time. God does not change. David says, you're my portion. You're all that I have. You're my lot. And when he says, you, you hold my lot, lot had the ideal of a tenant. And, and some of you, many of you rent and you know what it's like to be a tenant. They expect money from you. Um, at a certain, they expect that money from you uh, once a month. They expect for you to take care of what you have. And this is talking about in the great sense of salvation. David, David's saying, God holds me. I may always be a Roman 7 Christian. In fact, I will always be a Roman 7 Christian until God takes me away. But because God holds me, I never have to be afraid of being Hebrews 6. I never have to be afraid of in Revelation 3. I never have to be afraid of that day when I see Jesus that he will say, depart from me because I never knew you. Because my faith in God, because he's my portion, I fail, I struggle, and I sin. And yes, I do look to other things. But because of the grace of God, he will always hold my lot. He that began a good work in me will finish it into completion. I can constantly look to my Lord. He is my Savior. David can say with Asaph, who wrote Psalm 73, Who have I in heaven but you, O God? And there is nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. You are my portion. You're everything that I need. No matter what happens around me, no matter when in good times and bad times, what happens to my family, if I never meet a spouse, it... God is good. That, that's the life and prayer of the believer. Amen? If we're going to see that God is good, hear me. Christianity is by faith and faith alone. We become a Christian by grace, undeserved gift. But grace doesn't mean that you don't do anything. There has to be disciplines. There has to be in response to God's grace and in God's grace, things that you and I do to remind ourselves of God's goodness. And part of that is taking God's word and preaching it to ourselves. God, you are enough. God, you are enough. The, the, the last thing that he puts here in verse 6, he says, The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Whenever you, you The lions here, it speaks of uh, land. And not only land, the inheritance speaks of familial language, meaning family. David understands that God is his father. God is a good dad who doesn't kick his kids out of the house because of what, what they've done. God cares for his kids. God loves his kid. It, comes, it keeps coming back to this when it comes to the four Gs. It comes back to our identity. When we understand who we are, there are certain things that families are known for. You, you grow up in your neighborhood and you know, oh, those are the stewards that, you know, they're, they're really loud. And, you know, those are, those are, those are the, the Williams over there. They're, they do this. That's what they're known for. When God says that you're a child of God, there are certain things you'll be known for. And what you'll ultimately be known for is what he's done in his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? That, that's a true identity that God cares for us and his inheritance. We are now co-heirs with Christ Jesus. So the way that we turn from looking to other things is by looking to God, gaze upon God, trusting that he is our portion, believing that he satisfies. I'm going to give us a few things to walk out about God's goodness um, but by tracking through the rest of these verses. Five things, verse 7 through 11. One, verse 7 says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And the night out, my heart also instructs me. What is this? God is good, and so we don't have to look elsewhere for counsel. That's one of the things we do. We can look to counsel from God. David's counsel comes from the word of God, 
from prayer. And in verse 3, what we see is it's the people of God. In fact, turn back to verse 3. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. There, there, there's a sense of community. David knows that the counsel that he receives from the Lord, that ultimately he has from God's word and prayer and also from God's people, that God gives a means of his wisdom and counsel through the people of him. So God is good. We don't have to look elsewhere for counsel. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. To set the Lord before you has the ideal of direction and where you're headed. God is good. You don't have to look elsewhere for direction. You can look to God for direction. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Two things here. God is good. You don't have to look elsewhere for gladness. And also God is good. You don't have to look elsewhere for security. You don't have to look at people's words. You don't have to look to how you look. Your security is already rooted and established and firm in God. Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. This verse is quoted again in Acts chapter 2 as well as Acts chapter 13. And chapter 2 by Peter and at chapter 13 by Paul, speaking of the resurrection of Jesus. What David is pointing to now is that God is good. I don't have to worry about my future. I don't have to worry about my future, my future that's tomorrow and my future whenever I die, that God is good. I can trust him that he has my future in his hand. And lastly, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy and that your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is one of my memory verses, Psalm 16, verse 11, because whenever I think I think this world's going to bring me the greatest pleasure, what I realize is God says, in my right hand, I hold them forevermore. God is good. He gives us eternal pleasure. Just when you meditate on, you think eternal pleasure. Whatever sin offers, God offers more because he offers himself. He's good. We don't have to look elsewhere. We can repent from sin and turn to God. He's best. He's not only good. You got to remember, he's best. Amen? Let's pray.